Welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast that features ordinary black men in all walks of life doing extraordinary things. I am your host, Keith Dent, and for those of you that might not know, June is National Soul Food Month. So today on the show, we have Adrian Miller, author of Soul Food, the surprising story of an American cuisine one plate at a time. We'll talk about how we even came to call the food we love soul food. So before soul food, a lot of this food was called down-home cooking. Okay. And it was literally down because people in the north or whatever, and they were looking back on where they came from. And so geographically, they were north, and so they would call it down-home cooking. And then later it becomes soul food. So this stuff gets a name when it leaves the south. And how food like fried chicken, macaroni and cheese became soul food staples. And Elizabeth I. So their cooks were cooking out of this book. And there's a recipe for macros, M-A-C-R-O-W-S, and it's macaroni and cheese. And so essentially it's the noodles, Parmesan cheese, and some butter. And we'll find out, are we really eating yams? And those are some of the things that we'll talk about today. On that note, let's start the show. Adrian, uh, you know, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be with you. I'm, gl- I'm glad you're here. So, um, yeah, before we really get into, um, you know, just the, the history of soul food, I really want to hear just about your journey and how you, how you went from being a lawyer, I mean, to becoming a soul food writer. Well, the short answer is unemployment. Okay. Um, the longer answer is, so I was, um, I had just finished up a stint with the Clinton White House. And this, so this is 2001. And at that time, I wanted to, uh, my, my professional ambition was to become uh, a, the senator from Colorado at some point. So I wanted to run for office. So I was trying to get back to my home uh, state and town of Denver, Colorado, but the job market was really slow. So I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. <laughs> uh, and then it got to the point where I was sitting in the depth of my depravity. And I just said, you know, I should, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and I'm drowsing the food section because I always love to cook. And I found this book on the history of Southern food. And in the, that book, the author um, and the book is called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. So if you're if you're into Southern food history, you should definitely read that book. Um, and his name is John Edgerton. So Edgerton wrote that the tribute to black American achievement in cookery has yet to be written. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. So I just emailed him because, you know, he well, he wrote the book in the late 80s. So I'm reading it in 2001. So I just emailed him and asked him, I said, you know, you wrote this a while ago. Do you still think this is true? Because I was just convinced that somebody had already done that work. And he said, you know, for the most part, um, people have written about parts of it, but nobody's taken on the whole story. And he said, there's always room for another voice. So why not yours? So that's what launched me on the journey. How long did the journey take you to before you got a the opportunity to actually pin the book. So, uh, so I'm going to give you chronological and then, and okay. then uh, you know, the technical, because I, I always had a day job. So I was doing this as a side hustle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Technically it was 12 years from wow. the time that I decided I was going to do this to the time that the book came out. But if you, if you took the actual work part of it, I would say it was four years, four years of work, four years of work. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's kind of get into it a little bit. And so what would you say, can you give me a kind of a brief synopsis of how the food we love today actually became to be called soul food? Because as I mentioned in the first part is that soul food kind of came from, you know, the cuts of meat that, you know, or the scraps that uh, people wouldn't use, or if we want to say the slave owners wouldn't use. So how did it become to be called such a name that we're so endeared to. Yeah, so there's really two parts to the story. So let's just talk about the linguistic part. Okay. Well, the word soul and food were actually joined together in English back in Shakespeare's time. So um, one of Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's first play, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, there are two uh, female characters, Julia and Lucetta, talking about this sexy guy named Proteus. And he walks by in a scene and Julia says to Lucetta, Oh, knowest thou not that his looks of my soul's food? Pity the death that I've pined in by longing for that food so long a time. So, uh, you know, wow. even in the late 16th century, not unusual for two girlfriends to get together and describe a guy's yummy. That's one takeaway. <laughs> um, so that's where a snack came from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So, but for the next 400 years in English, soul food meant anything to edify your spiritual life. So it was reading a sermon, you know, listening to a sermon, reading scriptures, uh, singing hymns. And then fast forward to the 1940s, you get, it takes a musical turn. So you have these black jazz artists who are pretty miffed because white jazz artists were the ones who were getting the most gigs, the most fame and making the most money. So these jazz artists said, you know what? We're going to take this music to a place where we know white musicians cannot, cannot mimic the sound. And that was the sound of the black church in the rural South. So the gospel tinged jazz that emerges in the late 40s and early 50s, these jazz artists started, started descri describing it as soul and funky. Uh, so soul is the one that gains currency. And so it was really soul music first. And then it was soul brothers, soul sisters, soul food. Soul food was floating around in, in black culture in the 50s, well before the, the civil rights movement. In fact, um, the earliest ad that I could find of a black restaurant advertising for soul food was from a Los Angeles paper in 1960. So that mm. just shows you it was floating around before this. Because a lot of people say it was really the Black Power Movement, Civil Rights Movement, but that wasn't really peaking until the mid-60s. Okay. So, so it was floating around. So that's the linguistic part. So the food part, um, I'm actually going to expand what you said, because the, certainly the taking the lesser cuts of meat is part of the story. Okay. And that's really the legacy of hog killings in the South, because what they would do is once the weather cooled enough, people in the plantations nearby, you know, they would all kind of get together and kill all of their hogs at one time because it's quite a, an endeavor. And they wanted to pull as much labor as possible to get this stuff done. And so as, in the ways that the pigs were processed, African-Americans got certain cuts and then the big house, uh, the slaveholder got certain cuts. But but soul food is much more complex. Um, that's mm. part of the story. But soul food is really the bringing together of West Africa, Europe and the Americas. So there's a lot more food that goes into it. In fact, you know, a lot of the things we think of as soul food desserts, if you looked at their pedigree, they actually are high class British desserts that get embraced by black cooks. Same, the same thing is with macaroni and cheese. I mean, we think of macaroni and cheese as this everyday thing, but man, um, 800 years ago, it was royalty food. Yeah. Right. So, so a lot of these things have a, a, a really complex story. And so, and I know in the documentary, they touched upon this a little bit, that, but really the food that our ancestors were used to eating was mostly vegan they had touched upon. Partly can, I can understand that. And, you know, they even talk about that, in, you know, in the Bible about, you know, how that brings strength, you know, that kind of diet. But why did that change? So uh, it changed because of the change uh, in context, right? So people were coming from an environment where they had existed for thousands of years. Um, and so they were in tune with their ecosystem, but they get uprooted from that and they're put into this alien situation. So when you're forced migrants or immigrants by choice, you know, when you get to the new place, part of the human struggle is try to recreate home. And if you can do that with the same stuff you got from back home, you do that. But often you have to find substitutes or you have to embrace things that are new. Uh, what we know about slavery is that slaveholders controlled access to food, or at least they tried to as much as they could, uh, the enslaved's access for food. So uh, essentially, uh, enslaved people were given rations once a week, and it was usually mm. five pounds of some starch, a couple of pounds of smoked meat, and a jug of molasses. And so other than that, enslaved people had to figure out how to um, you know, supplement their diet. And so they did that by hunting, foraging, fishing, gardening all kinds of things like that. So I think it's really just being put into um, essentially a foreign land under a European context and European diet is very meat centered. Um, that causes a transition with enslaved people. But even with all of that disruption in their lives and their culinary traditions, you know, some things do come back. And so we, you know, uh, I think a lot of people who are steeped in Southern food and soul food know that vegetables play a huge part uh, in the cuisine. And you right. know you you can go to a lot of soul food places and they have a vegetable plate. Now it's not completely vegan because you know it's seasoned with meat a lot of the times, but still they have vegetable plates, and that's that's part of our tradition. And so is right. gardening, urban farming, all of that is part of our tradition. Wasn't there fear that they would be leaving? So I'd love to hear touch upon how how that came about because it's not something you you really hear. You, you thought they are when you think about slavery, they're enclosed in a certain other plantation and they can't they only can go so far. I'd love to hear. So, you know, some more details about that. Yeah, that's one of the biggest kind of untold stories about slavery is the extent to which enslaved people were kind of given some liberties. Uh, and so as you as you get closer to looking at slavery and listening to the, the testimony of enslaved people and stuff, you realize that people were were frequently given passes to visit nearby plantations. 
sometimes there were marriages that happened that way. Uh, mm. Somebody would marry somebody on a nearby plantation and and things like that. So there was a lot more fluidity in the system um, than you might think. But over, you know, superseding that was the, the slave patrols and all this stuff, because the you know, slave owners were worried about escape. But there, there was some permissiveness, uh, you know, in that. And I, I would love to read a more extensive study of this. But I, I it's something I just noted, because like you, I, I just didn't think that one enslaved people would be allowed to hunt um, and that they would have firearms in some instances. But most most times they didn't. And so they had to figure out how to you know, hunt with uh, improvised weapons. Mm -hmm. um, in order to kill the animals. So, um, yeah, it's something that requires a lot more study. But we know that enslaved people were allowed to hunt. As long as the work was done, uh, they were allowed to hunt and garden. And so, uh, you know, if people could do it at night, if there was a full moon, there was enough light to do it, they would do so. But a lot of times people were just too tired. So right. a, lot of, a lot of these activities would happen on the weekends or when, the, when the work schedule slowed. Okay. And so, and I know it's a lot to cover, but if you could kind of tell us how soul food has changed with the times, you know, from the time that they, uh, it's actually got its name to, to now, if there has been, and has there been any changes? Yeah. So, um, part of it is the, is the change, uh, in context from a rural context to an urban context. So when we think of, um, soul food, you know, that, that taint, that name really, as I said, doesn't come until the 20th century. And this is well into the Great Migration. It's interesting. Um, all of this was called Southern cooking during the antebellum period and, and Reconstruction, those, the latter part of the 1800s. But when people start leaving the South, um, it starts to get another name. So before soul food, a lot of this mm. food was called down-home cooking. Okay. Uh, and it was literally down because people were in the North or whatever, and they were looking back on where they came from. And so geographically, they were North. And so they would call it down-home cooking. And then later it becomes soul food. So this stuff gets a name when it leaves the South. So one of the things that was uh, a big change is the increase in meat and um, kind of fried foods and all these other things. So what I argue in my book, this is just my theory, mm -hmm. but I think it plays out, is that um, what we call soul food is really the celebration food of the South. So it's the stuff that people were eating when the work schedule slowed, either on the weekends or on holidays. So th things like fried chicken, fried fish, barbecue, uh, the glorious cakes, biscuits, all of that stuff. That only happened when cooks had enough time to make that. And usually that was when the work schedule slowed. And so and so it was once in a while food. It was celebration food. Uh, again, in another migrant context, when people leave a place and get to a new place, besides recreating home, you know, they want to they enjoy some status. And so once people prosper and feel like they are in a better place, they remember the good times food. From the old country, quote unquote, right. because the old country was the real South. So they were grubbing on fried chicken and barbecue and stuff multiple times a week instead of every once in a while. So all of this stuff that was special occasion food starts to become more of the core diet. Mm. When that happens, that's when you start to see, you know, the health consequences um, arise. The other thing is when you get to a new place, you've got new neighbors, right? You're exposed to other cultures. And so um, it's up to you whether you decide to like experiment with other what other people are eating and other things. So one of the other big changes in the African-American diet is the inclusion of Mexican food, Italian food, Chinese food, other foods from these new neighbors. Uh, and then I would say the fourth biggest change, and I, I'm going to group two different food groups together, but the rise of convenience food. So the availability okay. of fast food and, and food at gas stations and, you know, convenience stores and all this kind of stuff. To me, that is what has really had the, the deleterious effects on African-American health. Soul food gets blamed for a lot of this, but I, I'm, I think people are loading up on that other stuff, man. Fast food. Wow. Okay. Food. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would think that soul food does get a bad rap because one, from what you're saying, it's this is not something that we eat all the time. Uh, it was more used for celebrations, I guess, birthdays, you know, Christmas, New Year's, uh, what have you. Um, but it's the other foods, the more the fast foods that are more the day to day for a whole host of reasons, just due lack of food access, um, you know, costs and things of that nature, yeah. which have caused us to kind of go that direction and blame soul food kind of gets the blame for that. Yeah. And if, yeah. I, if I can just elaborate on your question in another way. So um, I like to talk about the current trends in soul food. So in addition to tr tr traditional soul food, you've got down home healthy. And so the idea is to take out the fat, the salt and the sugar 
with dishes that are normally associated with soul food. Then you've got upscale, which is doubling down on all the glorious stuff, uh, you know, and, and emphasis on presentation, heirloom vegetables, heritage meat. Uh, but I got to tell you, the most creativity right now is in the vegan space. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's the hot trend in soul food right now. When you say the most creative, the hot trend, how are chefs, do, how are they doing that? Look, we're not ones to be vegetarians for the most part. So <laughs> so how are they, you know, using their, I guess, skills to to get people, to draw people to that? So there's, there's two ways, right? One is um, to make things that taste like what people are used to in terms of meat um, and make it look and taste as much as they can. So that, that's that's a lot of the market right now with the plant-based things. But I'll give you an example. I went to a place called Solely Vegan in Oakland, California, and I had southern fried um, tofu that was shaped to look like fried chicken. Um, mm. I had, yeah, I had vegan mac and cheese. So there's no dairy in vegan, right? So it was made with almond milk and almond cheese. Uh, and I had collard greens that, you know, they were seasoned so well that you didn't even miss the meat and a cayenne pepper lemonade. So wow. that's one thing that people are doing. So they're, they're just making, um, you know, meatless versions of something that people recognize. And the other is people are just saying, nope, we're just going to make really incredible veg, 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 vegetables. And we're just going to ask you to just taste it and try it and you'll be hooked. So those are, those are the approaches that I'm seeing. And, and um, part of it has a cultural lens in that people are saying, you know, we're trying to get back to the foods our ancestors ate, mm. the way that they ate. Um, because uh, our our, her, our culinary heritage was disrupted by slavery and our plates have been colonized. So let's decolonize and get back to where our ancestors were eating. Right. Hey, it, it sounds good. And so I think, and a lot of people don't realize, realize that, that that was our, you know, that was more of our history and to get back to that because it's, of course, marketing and all that other stuff is very powerful and especially the meat industry. And so, so, but it's a matter of trying it's and going in with an open mind and, you know, let your taste buds do the talking. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Cause you know, a lot of people just have an attitude about it, but we've been, we're, we're a culture where we're weaned on meat. Right. Um, yeah. And so it, it's going to take an, an adjustment for some people to do that. But once they, once they have this food, I'm telling you, man, it's just creative. It's delicious. Uh, so I, I just love what's happening. I'm, I'm not vegetarian. I still eat meat, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, I eat a lot of this other stuff. And the only thing I, I will point out is fusion. So you're seeing a lot of, uh, African-American food, uh, fused with other cuisines. So like there's a mm -hmm. brother in Atlanta who calls himself the Blacksican. Okay. Adam, <laughs> his name, not mine. Um, <laughs> so he's doing things like collard green quesadillas. And then the other thing is you probably have seen soul food filled egg rolls, right? So soul rolls. So like an egg roll filled with collard greens or mac and cheese, chicken, rice and gravy, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm in, in Jersey. I haven't heard any of those. I haven't seen any of those yet. Oh, um, I'm surprised, actually. Which is, you know, interesting, you know, because I, I think I heard it on the on the pot on the, the Netflix show. And I was like, oh, wow. soul soul rolls. Interesting. Okay, we can do anything with our with our stuff. So, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So that's a great segue into uh, uh, their origin story. But I, you know, and I picked the, you know, the kind of the mainstays: uh, fried chicken, mac and cheese, and catfish. But there may be one that would blow people away as far as how it became soul food. So, uh, I'll give you a couple, and then maybe you may throw in a zinger for me. So. Fried chicken, because I, I start that I'm actually on that chapter now uh, in the book, and I was fascinated to hear that. Oh, this this is not actually it didn't originate from us. So I'd love to hear hear that. Yeah. So you know, uh, and first of all, you should know that when I started writing that chapter, I wanted to prove that fried chicken was from Africa because it's one of the most delicious things on the planet. And and you have the constituents parts, right? Because you have you have chickens, you have a tradition of deep frying foods and so many other things. But, you know, the way that West Africans eat chicken is not fried chicken. Um, mm. You know, they don't they don't like cut it into parts like big parts, flour it or put it in a batter and deep fry it. Um, West Africans are often breaking down a chicken into much smaller parts, cooking it in some kind of sauce. So it's more like a fricassee approach. So what I, what I did, you know, but the old, the earliest written recipe that I could find for fried chicken was from a British cookbook in the mid 1700s. And that recipe, it, they, they said to marinate chickens. That was the title of the recipe. 
But when you look at it, it's just like fl- cut, you know, get a chicken, butcher it into large parts, flour it, and, fr- and fry in hog lard. Wow. You look at, yeah. Uh, yeah, you look at the Virginia housewife a hundred years later, which is considered the quintessential Southern fried chicken recipe, and it's pretty much the same thing. And there's a additional stuff for gravy, but that, that's how you make it. My thought is, is that fried chicken was introduced by European slaveholders and slaves cooked were forced to make this dish. So, you know, numerous times, innumerable times and raised it to an art form. You, you see that similarly with other foods. Okay. So to double down on that, was there, what was the first um, recipe that you found of a black chef or a cook that actually made fried chicken? Did you ever find one? Oh, that was actually printed in that person's words? Yes. I think uh, Abby Fisher in the 1880s, because there was another book by another woman, Melinda Russell, but uh, and that was written in 1866. And that's, that's believed to be the first kind of cookbook by an African-American woman who was a cook, because there's some earlier books, but they were servant guides okay. um, that, that were printed a couple decades before that. I just don't remember seeing a fried chicken recipe in that book. Okay. So it's either one of those, but I know there's one in the uh, Abby Fisher book written in the 1880s. All right. And then mac and cheese. So mac and cheese is interesting. So it starts off as European food. Uh, So in in 1390, there was a cookbook called The Form of Curry, which was the go-to cookbook for Richard II and Elizabeth I. So their cooks were cooking out of this book. And there's a recipe for macros, M-A-C-R-O-W-S, and it's macaroni and cheese. And so essentially it's the noodles, Parmesan cheese, and some butter. Uh, so starts out as royalty food, and then in time it becomes wealthy people's food. And so when wealthy Southerners are are traveling abroad, they get they experience this dish and they bring recipes back home and start making it in Southern kitchens. One, most notably, George uh, Thomas Jefferson did this. And um, so you see a lot of references in manuscript cookbooks in the 1700s and 1800s to macaroni pie or macaroni pudding. Um, that's what people called it before we we started to call it macaroni and cheese. Like I said earlier with some with another dish, uh, it enters African-American cooking because enslaved cooks were forced to make this stuff. So, you know, fried chicken is the same story. And okay. again, we make it, we raise it to an art form. Well, what about our, our beloved hot sauce? Yeah, so hot sauce is interesting because uh, West Africans before European contact uh, had kind of hot chilies um, in their diet, but not the chilies we know, like not the chilies from South America, which are called capsicum, mm. but they had um, their own kind of grains of paradise, uh, melagata pepper, uh, and then ginger and cardamom. So they had a lot of warming spices in their cuisine. So what I say is that the African tongue was hot wired for these uh, new world chilies when they arrive there and then they get embraced. So um, heavily used in cooking and everything. So, but the idea of a condiment, we really see that first in the in the Caribbean. Um, there are some notes from Europeans who are in the Caribbean and they're, they're talking about how the indigenous people would make a sauce using citrus juice and chilies. And I believe that hot sauce is just an analog of that, right? Instead of the citrus mm. juice, which may be harder to have, especially at that time, right? Without refrigeration, you have a real chance of that spoiling. So swapping uh, vinegar in for the the citrus but, and then using cayenne pepper, uh, which was more readily available than, say, the hotter chilies like scotch bonnet and habanero, which uh, indigenous people are using in the Caribbean. And, and um, the interesting thing is that on the plantations, uh, hot sauce was healthcare uh, because right. through trial and error, uh, slaveholders found out that Increasing the number of peppers or chilies, as I call them, that people ate actually reduced the incidence of some diseases. Right, right. And I know Hillary Clinton loves she loves to her hot sauce. I know she heard I heard that story. She 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 likes to drink it. So I guess yeah, she, she, it in her maybe bag. she maybe she got that from you. Who knows? <laughs> um, and so is there a surprise food that we would really be blown away? as far as their origin into our... Yeah, so I think the one that really surprises people is chitlins. Because chitlins fits the whole narrative of, yeah, the master's leftovers, the food they didn't want, um, we got the extras. But um, if you delve into European culinary history, man, chitlins was highly esteemed dish. Um, especially after a hunt, they would, they would eat the innards of that animal. A lot of cultures believe that the guts of an animal holds the life force. And that's a 
belief that's prevalent in a lot of West African societies. So I could see that coming across the Atlantic during the slave trade and transferred from their native animals to, you know, the introduced ones like a pig. Um, and so, uh, and they're actually in this, in the slave narratives that I've read, you've got instances of slaveholders, um, you know, instructing their cook to make chitlins. And in one case, uh, one enslaved person talk about being beaten because they didn't make the chitlins well enough. So there's a mm. lot of white people eating chitlins. So I think that's the one that shocks people the most. Um, and, and I like telling that history because I, I'm trying to get people to rethink what they think about soul food. It's not trash. It's not all the master's leftovers. That's part of the narrative, but it's much more complex than that. Where were you 10 years ago when <laughs> my when my kids had to do had to do a, uh, you know, the bring a food of your culture. And I was like, chitlins, definitely. And, you know, you know, that doesn't necessarily go well. <laughs> yeah, but, a, yeah, it's a hard one. And, oh, man, I could have really sold that. But um, <laughs> that, that but that is that is fascinating because, you know, it does get a bad rap uh, as far as, you know, because it's the innards or it's kind of the leftovers. And, and uh, so that's great to know. Uh, so yeah, so let's transition a little bit because you were in the Netflix series High on the Hog, which is like I said, it was fast, fascinating. It was great. You know, I think it, I did watched it in two days. Um, but one of the things that that came up, which I know, and I had not heard anything about this, were the two black chefs that were um, part of the president's president's chefs, President Washington and President Jefferson. Oh yeah, so the first one is uh, with President Washington was a guy named Hercules. So Hercules, just to give you a quick bio on him, Hercules uh, was purchased as a young man. He was 19 years old. He was a boat ferryman for a guy named John Posey. And uh, the Washingtons purchased him. Now, remember, Washington married up. So Martha Washington was the wealthy widow that he married. So really, she it was part of her estate. Um, but for whatever reason, they make him go cook in, um, in Mount Vernon. And uh, he apprenticed under an old um, African-American woman named Old Doll, also enslaved. So when... Um, so years later, when Washington becomes president, he summons Hercules from the Mount Vernon kitchen to cook for him in the president's house in Philadelphia. The president's house was in Philadelphia because uh, D.C. was being constructed. Now, Washington had actually previously hired a white woman, but her I guess her food was nasty because she only lasted six months and he calls up Hercules. So there was really only one problem among us, among others, was a she problem is Pennsylvania had something called the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780, which said if you were an enslaved person on Pennsylvania soil for six months or longer, you were automatically free. So the way that Washington got around this is just around the time the six-month deadline would toll, he would send the enslaved people out outside of the state, chill them out for a little while, and then bring them back. Yeah, I found that fascinating. I was like, wow. That, I know. Messed up, right? <laughs> how sinister that is, you know? Yeah. And uh, And then... Of course, as we all we know, Sally Hemming, but then there was um, James Hemming. Yeah, so James Hemmings, again, a young man, around 19 or so, he goes, now Jefferson had um, owned him, but um, around he was 19, um, Jefferson brings him to France when Jefferson becomes minister to France. That's equivalent of being an ambassador today. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's minister to France. He has uh, Hemmings trained to be a professional French chef. So for three years, Jefferson spends a lot of money for this guy to be a chef. And he, uh, after he finishes that training, he becomes Jefferson's resident chef uh, in his Champs-Élysées Parisian apartment. And um, the uh, French Revolution breaks out, so they come back. And so he's cooking for him in Philadelphia and eventually back in um, Monticello. But at some point, um, Hemings asked to be free, and Jefferson agrees upon two conditions. He has to teach other enslaved people back at Monticello, how he cooks, because, you know, Jefferson didn't want to expend that money again. And then he had to leave behind some recipes. Wow. Yeah. So I'm convinced that, so, you know, um, Hemings, we're cheating a little bit by talking about Hemings in this context, because he never actually cooks for Jefferson when he becomes president. I'm actually convinced that he would have been offered the job. Oh. I don't know if he would have taken it, but he drank himself to death before uh, Jefferson gets inaugurated. Right, right. So uh, I know you wrote, you know, wrote the book about uh, the presidents. And so were there any other black executive chefs that served in the White House that you could that we probably don't know about that you could talk about here? Yeah, I would say we probably don't know about any of them. (laughs) Uh, 
So not all of them were head chefs, but I have found 150 African-Americans wow. have cooked for presidents since George Washington. So uh, every president's had an African-American cooking for them in some capacity, either okay. in the White House, at some somebody's house when they come to visit, or on the way as they are traveling. So on the presidential train, the yacht, or Air Force One. Mm. Um, so African-Americans have, have, have had a strong influence on African-American history. So, you know, one person I'd like to make, and she was only the executive chef for a short period of time because she was transitional in this role, but Zephyr Wright, who was the longtime uh, cook for Lyndon Johnson. Um, a lot of people okay. think that, yeah, a lot of people uh, say that it was because of her cooking that Johnson rose in Congress because back then members of Congress actually tried to be collegial. So they would have each other for dinner. Uh, and very few people turned down um, you know, uh, invitation from Johnson, knowing that Zephyr was going to be cooking. But Johnson uses her Jim Crow experiences to lobby for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And oh, wow. yeah, when he signed the bill, you know, they always use a ton of pens. He gave her one of the 72 pens that he used to sign the bill and said, you deserve this as much as anyone. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. So she is the now she was only in this role for a little bit because Johnson hated the French chef that he inherited from the Kennedys. And the, the French chef was not feeling making Johnson's Southern and Tex-Mex favorites. Like, you've ever heard of chili con queso? Oh, yeah, I have. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah so Rene Verdon called it chili concrete. Uh, <laughs> so that gives you an idea how he felt yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that's not, that's not great. Yeah. So when they fired, when he, when he got fired, as they were waiting to hire the next guy, who would be Henry Haller, uh, Zephyr Wright was the executive chef in that role. Otherwise, she was always the private cook, the family cook. Oh, I see. Okay. During the presidency, yeah. Okay, great, great. Um, and I want to go back kind of the James Hemming Hercules thing. That's fascinating. So I, as you were talking about, I was like, wow, they could have been featured a little bit in Hamilton, but of course they weren't because it was about Hamilton. But right. why haven't we heard more stories about, about them? Yeah, well, no, that's an interesting point because um, speaking of Hamilton, so the idea, the, 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 the deal that was struck to create DC and all this stuff, you know, a, a lot of this was done over a dinner, and it, it's widely believed that Hemings probably cooked that dinner where Hamilton, Jefferson, and I can't remember. I don't know if it was Adams. Oh, in the, in the room where it happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the room where it happened. So, it, you know, we don't know for sure, but it's it's highly likely that Hemings cooked that meal. So, uh, you know, we don't hear much about these people because there's uh, there's just a focus on the white people in presidential history. The the people who decide what stories get told about presidents usually focus on the whites. They're and this is in general, right? We don't hear a lot about the servants, whether enslaved or free. So that's just been the bias. So I, w I felt honored uh, to c collect these stories and be able to tell them and share them um, with others. Uh, but I got to tell you, you know, I, I made my pitches to all the major networks to try to make a documentary out of this and nobody was feeling it. You know, I, I kept being told, oh, this is interesting, but we just don't think there's much of an audience for this. Um, now, this was pre-Hamilton. It was six years ago, so maybe right. uh, you know, so maybe there's an audience now, but I was told um, that there wasn't an audience. Yeah, I think it would be fascinating because you don't even think of it. You really, I mean, you know, they're in the White House and they're doing a job. Of course, they have to eat and stuff like this. The fact that um, Jefferson sent Hemings over to France to learn how to cook, and 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 then the depths that George Washington went through just to make sure he ensured. <laughs> that Hercules stayed so that because that takes some real thought, you know, not just. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, Washington was very vindictive, had a volcanic temper. And so, you know, he was highly upset when eventually Hercules did escape. And I mean, a year later, he was trying to track down that brother um, and never did before he died. So, um, yeah. So it, it's quite a story. So I know you ventured, you know, in your, you know, in the, the soul and soul food doing the research. Of course, you you went to a lot of different restaurants. So I'd love to hear, you know, from a regional, you know, perspective, what was one of your favorites in kind of each region? And hopefully they're still around, uh, you know, because of the pandemic. But I'd love to hear, you know, what was your favorite in the South, West, Midwest? And of course, I'm in the East Coast. So, yeah, yeah. So it's funny that you say that because I just got interviewed by Forbes magazine uh, for this very question. And my all-time favorite soul food restaurant has closed. Um, wow. I'm so sad about it. It was called Bully Soul Food in Jackson, Mississippi. So dig this. It was the kind of soul food place where off the main dining room, there was a table 
And somebody on staff would come out and strip greens and peel sweet potatoes periodically. Oh, wow. I know, man. So you knew you were getting fresh stuff. Right? <laughs> yes, you did. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the blackberry cobbler at that place was just a revelation. So anyway, yeah, you guys. Uh, so that's not open any longer. Um, there was a place in New York City that I liked a lot. It was called Mitchell's. Um, it was in Brooklyn. That closed. Um, but of the places in New York City that I like a lot, um, there's a place called The Boulevard, BLVD. Great soul food place. I like Amy Ruth's. Um, and I love the seasoned vegan. Um, okay. That's some next level vegan food, man, in Harlem. Okay. Yeah. Um, then you've got uh, the Florida Avenue Grill in Washington, D.C., which is the oldest continuously operating soul food joint in the world. And then in the, so let's see, in the South, I would say that Busy Bee Cafe in Atlanta is a place that I really like. Um, then going to the West, you know, I like that solely vegan place. And I, in and, and Los Angeles, I like, I like a place called Doolin's. Okay. Um, but in Chicago, man, I got to tell you, the places that I really liked have all closed. I really like this place called the Morrison Avenue Cafe. Man, that place, uh, the after dinner, uh, after church crowd, man, was just legendary. The line out the block, man. So you really? Know, all those, uh, you know, all those black women in their crowns. Yeah, absolutely. Take out stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, the pandemic. Well, I, I, it was not only the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic accelerated some of this, but um, a, a combination of being a generational moment. Because, you know, a lot of these joints were opened in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And so the people running these places have either retired or they're dying and the kids are just not interested in running the place. Cause you know, truth be told, running a restaurant is it's, it's hard work. It's it not, is hard work. Yeah. It is hard work. And the margins are so thin. Yeah. That the, you know, they, and, and, and of course they saw their families, they saw their parents doing it and the grandparents and they realized how much, <laughs> how much time it takes that, and you know, they, they need, they want to do yeah. other stuff. Yeah. Oh, one more place. Uh, closer to you so in philadelphia i love this place called deborah's kitchen and i can't tell you what part of town it's in but yeah i really like that place okay oh that's great that's fantastic um and so i mean and i know you, you touched upon it a little bit and i want to make sure there's nothing more but you you had mentioned that soul food is kind of there's a change there's at people are adding fusion other other types of food uh to to create a kind of a soul food flavor and then also uh, the more vegan style or vegetarian style. Um, so, but, so then kind of additional question, how has the, how has, um, I guess, African-Americans, how they taken to it? Cause that doesn't, even though they, those chefs are, that doesn't necessarily mean we are actually going. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I'd love to, have you noticed that, that we're, we're taking to, the change in how soul food is being done. Oh yeah, especially, uh, well, let me put it this way. Most soul food joints now are vegan in terms of their side dishes. So okay. they'll have meat on the menu, but they've gone vegan um, and how they make their greens and other things. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, because you can get the broadest customer base, right? It's a great business decision because if you go vegan with just your side dishes, you get all the vegans, you get all the vegetarians, and then you're going to get the meat people too, because they're there to get their, you know, smothered pork chops or fried chicken, but they'll, you know, they actually might feel good about, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm being a little bit healthier by having these vegan side dishes. So um, there was a time when a lot of people, uh, soul food restaurateurs switched from pork to smoked turkey for a healthier vibe. But now uh, you'd be surprised how many have taken the meat out altogether. You'd be really surprised. And then I'm a lot of support, a lot of love for um, vegan. Um, a lot of vegan restaurants are doing quite well across the country, you know, like soul, vegan soul or black vegan places. And then the other thing that's been really interesting that you're starting to see emerge is this. Um, you've got more and more restaurants and chefs trying to do the diasporic uh, connection. And what I mean by that is they're trying to show the connections between West Africa and what we eat here. Uh, and they're mm -hmm. doing they're intentionally doing that in their dishes. And I, I think that's exciting because that's just another way to show our story and, and to tell more people about our history. So I hope that that trend really catches on. There's a, there's a few chefs doing it right now. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to say it's widespread, but right, right. man, I, I think that'd be really cool if it did become widespread. But how do you think it got lost? Is it, do you think it's just because of slavery or is it, um, was there, and they weren't allowed to kind of keep the traditions or was it something else? 
I think it's complex, but I think a major part of it is slavery because uh, white slaveholders and the culture that surround it were trying to obliterate a black past. You know, they didn't want they didn't want people and as, as well as do as much to strip these people of their of their humanity because they were just commodities. But we we see the resilience and the triumph of African-Americans and that despite all the horrible things thrown at us, we're still here um, and we we still have remnants of our culture. And then. Um, as part of the colonial, you know, the, the the enslavement and the mindset created by that, there was this negativity associated with anything from Africa. So why would you, you know, the ad was planting the seed that why would you hold on to anything from Africa as nothing good comes from Africa. Um, and so I think um, those who embrace that mindset are culpable in not passing on these traditions. Now, fortunately, we've, we've had those storytellers, you know, we call them griots and other things um, who kept our culture alive. And, um, you know, the exciting thing about scholarship in at least the 20th century and now is we've got more and more people of color interested in their, the law, you know, going back into the, going deep into their past and trying to show that story of how we got here. Uh, so I think it's like purposeful um, blurring of memory by whites. And then, you know, to some extent we played into that. And then I, the third thing I would say is I really think it's just the rise of fast food and convenience culture shifted our meal uh, patterns away from traditional soul food. Mm -hmm. uh, people are just eating a lot of other stuff. And so, you know, I, I've, I have parents that tell me, yeah, you know, we just we had mac and cheese for dinner, but they're having it out of the blue box and they're not there's no connection to like, oh, right. you know, well, we used to do this as Sunday dinner back then. It's just like I, I'm I've been working all day. I got these kids yelling at me. I need to get them fed. Let me <laughs> right. Yeah, you know. Because we talk about West Africa. The one of the things that was so fascinating that I saw was the yam. Uh, because I was wondering, I was like, what are these big long things that they're that they're and that was the yam. But for the most part, we don't eat yams in this country. Is that correct? That's correct. Now I'm I'm sure some of your listeners are like, What? I got yams every, you know, Thanksgiving, blah, blah, blah. Well, we call yams in this country are dark fleshed sweet potatoes. They're not the tropical yams of West Africa. And the reason that happened is um, in the 1920s, some Louisiana sweet potato farmers said, we, we need to distinguish our product in the market. So mm. they bred a um, darker fleshed, so more orange and sweeter sweet potato. And they called that yams. And so that's where that comes from. That's why you, on Thanksgiving, you can walk in a supermarket. There's a big old bin. And on one side, it says yams. And on the other side, it says sweet potatoes. But botanically speaking, they're the same thing. Oh, but, wow. okay. But they just but, use the word. Yeah, we just use the word. And so what, what is interesting, though, though, is you, if you go back and start looking at early recipes and dishes, it's clear that West African cooks enslaved on this side of the Atlantic um, in a different context used sweet potatoes as a substitute. It was close enough to something they were used to, and so it becomes a substitute. And there, there are cases where enslaved people who were from – yam eating countries or yam eating they weren't countries really by then but yam eating areas of west africa were actually pleading with the slave owners to let them have sweet potatoes as the starch that based their rations instead of cornmeal or rice mm. and again that's because that was something that looked familiar have you had a yam what's the what's the difference in taste between the two uh so you know uh a yam is going to be very similar to what we think of as potatoes so the the one that's memorable to me is I had something called fufu, which is pounded yam. And so it's, it's pounded really to be the consistency of mashed potatoes. It's, it's pliable. Um, and the idea is that, you know, you have your, the typical meal in West Africa is, is a starch served with some savory soup, stew, or sauce. So you break off some of the yam and scoop up that sauce in another dish or fish or whatever it is. And you kind of eat with your fingers. Oh, okay. So it's, it's a vessel to get something in. So, you know, it makes sense that it's neutral in taste because you have this really incredible, usually soup, stew, or sauce that's served with it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so it doesn't really taste like anything, really. I mean, if you've... It, so it like, doesn't really have a taste, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the, those are the yams that I've had. I'm sure there are multiple types of yams. I know there are. Uh, maybe they have a distinctive taste, but everything that I've had, it's been, you know, it's the same as mashed potatoes. It's a vessel really for something else, unless you spice, you know, season it in a certain way. So a yam pie is not going, it's not going to do it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It would. Yeah. 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 Um, well, this has been fast. Great. Um, I have really thoroughly enjoyed 
enjoyed um, this brief history. I know it's so rich, enriching and deep, and I can't wait to to delve more into the book. So I'm definitely, if I have questions, I'll email you. But one of the things that we we always do on the show, you're doing extraordinary things. We don't always, especially as men, get in touch with how we're feeling just individually and personally. So I always end up the question is, what is on your mind as a black man? You know, how are you feeling? And so, you know, whatever you feel you want to talk about, the floor is yours. Oh, thanks, man. I'm glad you asked that. So, you know, I'm just wondering, okay, we've had a lot of white people reading books about how to be anti-racist. We've had the discussions. So I'm just wondering, are we really going to have a moment where we do start work rolling up our sleeves and working towards racial justice? Because uh, we've, we've had moments in the past that could have sparked what we've experienced over the last year. Um, but they're usually fleeting, right? After two months of attention, we're off to the next thing. I have to say that's not the case. I, I know personally, I know a lot of white people who are grappling with these things. I, I don't, they, I, it, my sense is they just don't know what to do, but they are grappling with it. Now there's a lot of people who aren't, just don't, just don't get that twisted, but there are quite a few that I know who, who are. So um, I've been wondering, can we really make progress in this moment without losing it? Um, so I'm thinking about that and you know, it just, it just mourns, I just mourn that so many people still get killed you know, um, and are getting killed. And it's just kind of like, what well, you know, yeah, that just, you know, how can we stop this? The level of violence, disrespect, all of the, you know, from ranging from microaggressions to just outright being murdered. You know, how can we get to a point with racial justice where, uh, you know, we feel like we're a part of the society and fully accepted, fully embraced. And I know that's kind of part of your, you know, your other work that you do, uh, working with churches around social justice what what are they what are the clergy saying what are they also grappling with those things on how to kind of actually take action because of course back in the day you know we turned to the church and they would tell us the action we would take of course led the civil rights movement and those other things yeah and so are are they struggling with that now so it depends on who you talk to so the the black clergy aren't right they're definitely pressing for racial justice that they're all about it but i think the difference between now and say the civil rights movement is the civil rights movement black, maybe reluctantly, but white clergy, a lot of white clergy were walking arm in arm with black folks then. That's right. not so much the case now. You, uh, when I talk to white pastors, um, they are reluctant to get into the fray because of the people sitting in their pews. Mm. Um, and the, the people sitting in their pews, they treat, they want church to be a refuge. So all of the noise of the outside world, they don't want to deal with that. They want a place where they can get away from that. Wow. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I've got pastors just like, look, you know, if I say Black Lives Matter in a sermon, people get up and leave. Now, dig that in a church. Wow. People mm -hmm. are leaving, right. So I, I understand their impulse to play it safe. But ultimately, what I tell them is I said, OK, you know, that dude you profess to follow, Jesus Christ. This is the stuff you'd be talking about. Right. Uh, he was talking about social justice. So there's that. And the second thing is you, you wonder why there's not young people in your church. They see that you're not doing anything and they care. And so they're going to other places where they can do this stuff. Because one thing that was undeniable during the George Floyd, uh, you know, pro protests and everything, George Floyd inspired protests is you saw a lot of young people, a lot of white young people out there in the streets. Right. And I don't know if we've seen it that much to that extent before. So yeah, so I have to tell you, man, I'm, I'm a little, um, I'm not, I haven't given up, but, and I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but this, but even doing a racial justice work in the church is tough. And um, I just thought, given our common theology, it was a, it was a space where, where there could be not only collaboration, but we could actually teach others how to do this. Right. But the faith community has got problems as well as, as much as anybody. So, um, and I'll just leave you with this one final thought. So at the council, I run the Colorado Council of Churches and um, I've been doing it for eight years. I can just tell you this, whenever I do uh, any kind of email communication that explicitly talks about racial justice, I will get uns unsubscribes. Wow, unsubscribes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough thing to think about just especially especially from clergy because it is supposed to be about jesus christ and right. um, 
Yeah. And, and we know there were black people in the Bible and everything else. So the fact that the, it's an automatically unsubscribed just because you want to have the conversation, not that we were. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what we get on the other side of the equation is black clergy are just deeply cynical about the white church. Because uh, I've, I've tried to bring black and white churches together and the black pastor will say, hey, look, man, we've seen this movie before. These white churches, they just want us to come on Martin Luther King Jr. Sunday, preach a sermon so they can check off a box. That's all they really want to do. They don't want to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of racial justice. And I got to tell you, their cynicism is borne out from what I've seen. Now, I will say this. A lot of the evidence, empirical evidence that I have was before George Floyd, George Floyd's murder and the other significant murders, right? So um, in this time of uh, a rush to affirm African-Americans and protest, there are a lot more white churches trying to do the work. They've started racial justice committees. You know, I I met with a white pastor a couple days ago. He's like, look, reparations need to happen and the church needs to lead the way. So, you know, I gave him a dose of cold water and I said, look, man, I know I appreciate your thought, but if this is just even on racial dialogue, I can't even make progress. So I don't know how we're going to get to reparations, but hey, you know, we should try. Well, I think if you can infuse some soul food in there <laughs> and uh, and somehow people love, everyone loves soul food, that might be able to foster some communication. So if anybody can do it, you would be the person to do it. So. Adrian, I, I just wanted to thank you for um, thank you for being on today. I just uh, appreciate you know all that you've done to to advance this work and and let people know uh, the origin and history. All right, Keith. Well, good to be with you, man. Thank you. All right. So you have a great day. Thank you, Adrian, for giving us just a brief history on soul food. If anyone is interested in checking out his other books, go to adrianemiller.com. Also, you can check him out on the Netflix documentary, High on the Hog. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and edited by me, Keith Denton. You can find previous episodes of Black Men Speak wherever you get your favorite podcasts, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As you know, we always end the show with a quote, and this one comes from George Tillman Jr., I realized that food was actually a metaphor for bringing us all together. It's about us communicating and being like family. This is the Black Men Speak Podcast. Peace.